let's get into the word together. Um, We have been in our series going through the gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has been teaching us and he has been showing us what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven, what it means to live under God's authority, what it means to live on earth as it is in heaven. He's been teaching us what it means to be salt and light, as the title of our series is. And we saw that that starts with repentance. And then we saw how Jesus faced and overcame temptation by knowing and using God's word. And then we saw that if we uh, take Jesus up on his invite to come and follow him, that he will change us. He will change our beliefs and our attitudes and our actions, our, our heads and our hearts and our hands. And then last week, we began to unpack this manifesto that Jesus gives us for kingdom living, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount by answering a question that, uh, that people really want to know. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be approved by God? How do we find God's favor? How do we live lives that are pleasing to God? And what Jesus told us probably surprised us because it's probably upside down for what most of us think. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sins. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the things of God, for righteousness. And each one of these qualities can be found in in, in the life of somebody who is living in the kingdom of heaven And each one of these qualities kind of builds on the one before it, like this ascending staircase of living in the kingdom of heaven. The first half of these Beatitudes that we saw last week are four Godward qualities. They they have to deal with our relationship with God, right? We begin our relationship with God by being poor in spirit. We recognize that we have no merit, nothing to offer God, that we are completely dependent on him. We are poor in spirit, and that naturally leads us to then mourn for our sins. And then as we know our weakness, we grow more humble and more meek. And having no fullness in this life and in ourselves and no satisfaction in this world, we begin to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, for the things of God. And then, as we are going to see today, having received God's mercy and having a right relationship with God, we then begin to turn into our relationships with other people and they start to impact our relationships with others. Today, we're going to see that how being in a right relationship with God then leads us to be in a right relationship with others. And friends, this is always how living as salt and light, living in the kingdom of heaven looks like and how it works. It starts with us being in a right relationship with God, and then it flows out with us being in right relationships with others, which is kind of interesting when we think about it, because sin has the opposite effect, right? Sin impacts our relationship with God, and it impacts our relationship with each other, right? We see this modeled in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, right? First, they had shame, and they hid themselves from God, Right? It separated them between, between them and God. 
And then what did they start doing when God started questioning? They started pointing fingers at each other, didn't they? (laughs) It's easy for us to look at Adam and Eve and say that, but we do the same thing. Our sin separates us from God and it separates us from each other. And what's really interesting is these beatitudes counteract the impacts of sin by first working on our relationship with God and then working on our relationship with each other. I want to remind you what N.T. Wright said. We shared this last week, but it bears reminding. He said, the worst mistake that we can make about these famous and stunning passages is to see them as a list of rules. We've got to try hard to be poor in spirit. We've got to try hard to mourn and to be meek and so on. It isn't. It's a royal announcement that God is turning the world upside down or rather right way up. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. And guys, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. We would love to give you a uh, copy of God's Word for you to have as your own. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be at today, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. Matthew is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, if you're looking for it. It's the very first book of the New Testament, and first of four books that we call the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels because they tell us the good news. That's what gospel means. They tell us the good news about Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start there in verse 7 where we left off last week. We'll also have it up here on the screen so you can read along with me. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's pause there. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy mercy. Guys, God could have divorced and disowned rebellious and sinful and broken people like you and me, but he didn't. In fact, God meets us in our sin and our brokenness, and he leads us beyond it. Now, this mercy cycle begins with God showing mercy to us. But then as God shows us mercy, we continue this cycle by showing mercy to other people. We have received mercy, and so now we begin to show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And as we show it, we continue to experience a greater measure of mercy ourselves. Now, guys, the idea of mercy is rooted, is grounded in the the Hebrew concept of hasad, right? Hasad uh, is the word that we see translated in the Old Testament as loving kindness. And God's hasad, God's loving kindness, his mercy in the Old Testament is his covenant-keeping love despite, despite the failings of his people Israel. Time and time again, we see Israel rebel and turn against God and God's loving kindness, his mercy, his covenant-keeping love is extended to them. And in fact, he loves wayward people so tenderly that it gives us such insight to how central mercy is to God's heart. I want you to think about these truths when it comes to mercy. First, God's mercy is his glory. God's mercy 
is his glory. In the Old Testament, God reveals his glory to Moses. And I want you to listen to what Moses says. Moses says, Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. God showed Moses his glory And Moses immediately responds with praising God for his mercy. God's mercy is his glory. And God's mercy is also his motive. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Friends, God's mercy is his glory and God's mercy is his motive. He is motivated by mercy because God is rich in mercy. Because he is rich in mercy, he has given us life when we deserve death. You and I have earned death because of our sin, and yet because God is rich in mercy, he has given us life through his son Jesus and through his grace. God's mercy is his motive, and God's mercy is his glory, and God's mercy is his requirement. Micah 6.8 reads this, He has showed you, old man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Maybe you've heard these words. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Jesus emphasized this call to mercy, saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then in Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen, God says of King Josiah, he says, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy. Is this not what it means to know me? Friends, God's mercy is his glory. God's mercy is his motive, and God's mercy is his requirement of us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Paul kind of contracts, or contrasts this idea of God's mercy being his requirement for us, that he has shown us mercy, now we should show mercy. And, and in Romans chapter 1, he kind of at the end of chapter one gives us a list of of all of these quality traits of people who don't know God, all these evil quality traits. And the last three of those traits, those terms are found here. It says untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. For somebody who doesn't know God, they are unmerciful. But for somebody who knows God, they will show mercy, blessed, are the merciful, for they have, will be shown mercy. Clearly, it is critical that we grow in this God-like quality. This is a quality that God has, and he expects us to grow in, especially if we want to continue to receive the mercy that God has initially shown us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God has shown us mercy, and now we will grow into want to show others mercy as well. 
And that leads us to our next beatitude, to be pure in heart or to be holy. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Most of us immediately associate holiness with moral purity. But to be holy means above all other of its definitions to be set apart. To be holy means to be set apart, to be unique, to be distinct. Okay? When we say that God is a holy God, what we mean by that is that he is one of a kind. That he is utterly separate from all else that exists. That God is holy. And interestingly, one of the consequences of the fact that God is holy is that he is not one with the universe or somehow embedded in creation. He is the creator and he is far above creation. He is distinct from the created order. He is unique. He is separate, which of course means that God is also uncorrupted by the world's sin. He is pure, which is the secondary meaning of holiness or holy. Now, when we say God is holy, we are saying that he is set apart and unique and distinct, and he is pure. And this same dual definition for holiness also is for holy people. We are first set apart by God. We are made his unique and distinctive people, and then what naturally results from that is that we become morally pure because we have been set apart from the power of sins dominant, as a dominant force in our life. But notice that it's not the other way around. We are not morally pure and then therefore become holy because if we could do that, then there would be no need for God and no need for Jesus. We aren't. But what we are is we have been made holy by God through the sacrifice of Jesus. We have been set apart, and so then we begin to live like we are holy. We are made holy, we are made set apart to God and, th uh, and for God through Jesus, and then this holiness grows out of our state. The Bible calls this sanctification, Okay, it's a big church word, right? Sanctification. We are justified, which means we are made just as if we never sinned by Jesus through the work that he did for us on the cross and that he has done for us through the grave. And this state of being justified then begins to work in us because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now is living in us and working out through us and it begins to reflect in our lives sanctification. So holiness first is a work that God does to us, and then holiness is also a response to what God has done to us. To He makes us holy, and then we act accordingly. 
Not that we are perfectly holy, but the entire course of our life has been changed. We now live in a Godward direction. We now are going his way. We now live with his motives. We now honor his leadership. We now submit ourselves to his authority. And even when we sin, we find ourselves repenting and forsaking that sin quickly. After all, we are holy people because God has made us holy. And we can no longer live in sin, as John tells us. And this fact really gets to the heart of holiness on a practical level. Holiness is purity and a singleness of desire. It's a radical reorientation toward God that makes us love him and obey him more sincerely. And such a purity of heart makes us able to see God's influence, not only now, but also in our past, and more importantly, in our future for all eternity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are able to see God. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart. And friends, when we have been shown mercy, we will begin to show mercy. And when we have been made holy, then we will become holy. And it leads us to follow the example of Jesus even further and to become peacemakers, even when we have to face persecution and suffering for it. Look at verse 9. Jesus continues and says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you for being a Carolina fan. Oh, no, that's not what it says, is it? <laughs> Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evils against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, the Bible calls us to go against the grain. We are called aliens and strangers. We are called a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that is set apart Jesus calls us to go against the flow. He calls us to actually diminish conflict rather than help escalate it. He calls us to wage peace and to make peace. Peacemaking is the last character quality described in the Beatitudes. We've been on this descending staircase of traits, beginning with a poverty of spirit, and it reaches its climax here in peacemaking. Only the eighth beatitude remains, and that is persecution, which isn't necessarily a quality, a character quality. It's more a natural result of having the other seven in our lives. If we are living as salt and light, if we are living in the kingdom of heaven, if we are living out these blessed states, then we will naturally face persecution and suffering and slander. So peacemaking is really the pinnacle of what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus is captured in this term, peacemaking. And and peacemaking is really highlighted throughout the rest of the New Testament. Consider these verses of Scripture, like Romans 14, 
19. Paul says, make every effort to do what leads to what? Peace and mutual edification. Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of what? Peace. Hebrews 12.14 says, make every effort to live in what? Peace with all men. Theologically speaking, peacemaking is the best description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the best description of our mission as Christ followers as anything else. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been redeemed, we have been reconciled, and we are now Christ's ambassadors. We are co-workers with God, and we have been reconciled to God. We have had peace made between us and God through Jesus Christ, and now we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. We have had peace made between us and God, and so now we are peacemakers. This is the mission that Jesus has given us. We wage peace in people's lives. And if you think about this, all ministry, all service to God and his kingdom and his church is all about making peace. Evangelism is about making peace between sinners and God. Serving the poor is about restoring peace to disordered economic conditions. Building racial unity is about forging peace between former enemies. Counseling is about bringing peace to troubled minds and broken relationships. Even dating your wife is about maintaining peace in your marriage. All of these things are about bridging and forming peace between God and man and between man and each other. The bottom line is this, if our thinking is flawed, if we think that peacemaking only means that we solve our own conflicts in a peaceable way, friends, it's so much more than this. God has called us to so much more. We don't have to look very far to see the discord and uh, strife and brokenness that is all around us whether it's in our families or in our neighborhoods or at our workplaces or at our schools, we don't have to look very far to see the brokenness and discord and strife that's all around us. In our country, 60% of homes experience domestic violence. On average, 20 people per minute, 20 people per minute are physically abused by someone that they know intimately. During one year, that means that more than 10 million men and women are physically abused. And these numbers are from 2018. We had something called a worldwide pandemic, enforced isolation. And friends, we have seen these numbers skyrocket in the last couple of years. We don't have to look very far to see the brokenness and hurt that is going on around us. Peacemakers insert themselves into such situations, waging peace in the name of Jesus. Peacemakers often enter into very tense and time-consuming and messy and risky ventures. 
Peacemakers do more than just wear tie-dye shirts and protest wars as peace lovers do. Peacemakers do more than wear badges and carry guns as peacekeepers do. Peacekeepers and peacemakers repair breaches and brokenness that exist. And they do that by inserting themselves and their resources, their time, their talents, and their treasures, and their energies into the gap to bridge what has been broken. Here at Journey Church, we put it this way. We say that we want to walk side by side through the messiness of life with prayer, accountability, and encouragement. And then we also say that we follow the example of Jesus who sacrificed self for the needy, the hurting, and lost, that we put our faith into action when we mobilize to help our community and our world, even when we are called to sacrifice and to suffer, to put their needs over our own. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. It means to stand in the gap because this is what Jesus has done for us, and so we do it for others. Blessed are the peacemakers. They stand in the gap. Is it easy? No, it's not. It's hard. It hurts. It's messy. It's going to cost you. You're going to be persecuted and suffer, and you're going to have to sacrifice for it. But is it worth it? Oh, yeah. It's worth whatever it may cost you to make peace in somebody's relationship. To make peace with somebody's broken mind to make peace in somebody's uh, economic situation, to make peace in somebody's relationship, to make peace between them and God. It is worth whatever it may cost us. Blessed are the peacemakers. Beatitudes begin with poverty of spirit, and they end with persecution. The reward of both of those, go back and look, is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's as though through poverty of spirit, the kingdom of heaven enters into us, and God comes in and he takes up residence in our life, but it's through persecution that the kingdom of heaven is shown in and through us. Right? I want you to listen to what the persecuted early church what they concluded. Now, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas uh, had, had been in one city. In fact, Paul had been stoned and left for dead, and not like stoned on drugs, stoned like literally like the, the people took stones and picked them up and threw at him to try to kill him. And they thought he was dead, and they left him there. But he wasn't, so he got back up, and him and Barnabas, they left town. I don't know why. Maybe, you know, they didn't feel welcomed. I, I don't know, right? So, but anyway, they go to the next town, right? They go to Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and they preach the good news and they make disciples. And in, in verse 22 of Acts 14, it says, they also strengthened disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith with these words. Listen to it. Paul said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 
Guys, this really shouldn't surprise us, but it always does. Jesus said that if we belong to the world, it would love us as its own. But he has called us out of the world and he has made us beatitude loving and beatitude living people. And because of that, the world hates us. Everyone who follows this godly way of life will be persecuted. Now, we may not all be imprisoned or killed, or, but we will face some harassment or slander or social rejection. And so let's not be surprised when we do. Instead, let us hold firmly to what we believe. And let's recognize the awesome reward of enduring persecution as a faithful follower of Jesus. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said. So as we close today, I want to share with you just a few ways that we are truly blessed when we are persecuted. We are truly blessed when we are persecuted. First, we are blessed when we are persecuted because persecution provides a deeper assurance. Persecution provides a deeper assurance. If, if our persecution comes because of our righteousness and not because of our self-centeredness, then it it gives us a sense of legitimacy and authenticity. We realize that we really do belong to God because he promised us that if we do, that we will face persecution. <laughs> and so it should give us a deeper sense of assurance. But if all we do is continue to indulge in the world's pleasures, if all we do is continue to treasure the things of the world, if all we continue to do is to act like the people of this world, then we will continue to lay in bed at night wondering if we are for real or not. I love what Paul tells us in Romans. He says, those that suffer, and suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Friends, that is the reward of persecution. Persecution provides a deeper assurance that we are God's. And persecution also provides a stronger impact. Friends, Jesus follows up the Beatitudes with his famous salt and light analogy, which is where we get the whole title from for this whole sermon series. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more next week. But Jesus says that, that beatitude-believing people and beatitude-living people are the only hope for preserving the world from further decay. He says that we are the only source of moral life to humanity. And, and the stories from the, the first apostles all the way through church history have shown that persecution provides the strongest salt and the strongest light. Our impact only increases when the world turns up the heat on us. Persecution provides us a deeper assurance, provides us a stronger impact, and finally persecution provides us, not really us, but God, broader praise. 
Friends, our light shines more brightly in the dark. Our light shines more brightly in persecution so that others may see our good deeds and glorify our Father and glorify God who is in heaven. Peter reiterates these same things, saying that it is possible for us to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day that he visits. Friends, more people saved, greater number of worshipers, means broader praise for God. These are the ultimate thrills of persecution provides. Again, here at Journey Church, we say that we follow the example of Jesus who sacrificed self for the needy, the hurting, and the lost. And we put our faith into action, even when we are called to sacrifice and to suffer, to care for the needs of others over our own. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian preacher. He spent 14 years imprisoned and tortured. In 1945, he had started an underground ministry to not only Romanian Christians, but also to the invading Roman soldiers. And one Sunday morning, as he was on his way to worship and gather with the rest of the church to worship, a vehicle drove and several men jumped out and snatched him up and carried him off to prison. He was initially there for eight and a half years. Three of those were spent in solitary confinement. Richard's family was visited by authorities who posed to be released prisoners, and they told his family that they had attended his funeral after he had died, but in reality, he was still in prison being tortured and brainwashed. Under his captors, Richard was forced to listen repetitively to communist propaganda for 17 hours a day. He was beaten repeatedly. He was moved in and out of refrigerated cells. He was even put in a tight box with nails driven in. As long as he stayed perfectly still, he wouldn't be cut. Richard writes these words. He says, in solitary confinement, I had nothing to read, no writing materials. I only had my thoughts for company, and I was not a meditative man. He said, rather, I was a soul that barely knew quiet. I had God, but had I really lived to serve him, or was this simply my profession? Did I believe in God? Now the test had come. I was alone. There was no salary to earn, no golden options to consider. God had offered me only suffering, and would I continue to love him or not? Richard says, slowly I learned that on the tree of silence hangs the fruit of peace. He says, I began to realize my real personality and I made sure that it belonged to Jesus. I found that even here in my thoughts, my feelings turned to God and I could pass night after night in prayer and spiritual exercise and praise. I know now that I was not play acting, but that I truly believed in Jesus. Friends, persecution has a wonderful way of clarifying what we believe. And that's why it's the perfect capstone to these Beatitudes. It's the final exam. It's the test of our convictions. 
Do we really believe that poverty and humility and and purity and the like are the road to joy in God or not? It's easy for us to say yes, but what happens when the world hates you for believing that and living those traits? What happens when people slander your name and take your job and beat your body because of living these beatitudes? Persecution has a wonderful way to clarify what we truly believe and don't. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the things of God. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and the persecuted. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like to be salt and light. This is what it should look like in our lives. Journey Church does it. Does this describe our lives? If not, What areas do you need to submit to God in? Are you coming to him poor in spirit? Having nothing to offer him at all? Are you coming to him and mourning your sins? And repenting of those truly? Are you humbling yourself and becoming more meek? Are you you hungering and thirsting for the things of God and not not just the things of this world? Are you showing mercy because God has shown mercy to you? Are you becoming holy because God has made you holy? Are you waging peace in your relationships with each other and helping others to wage peace in their lives? Even if you're facing persecution and suffering for it. Are you living as salt and in light or not. Friends, it begins by you submitting yourself to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. As the one who saves you and the boss of your life, it, it starts by you coming and dying to your sins and to yourself, meeting him in baptism so that you can be raised a new creation. It starts by you recognizing your need for God. Will you come and do that today? I'm going to pray, and we're going to move into our time of communion. Father, we thank you for the lessons that your son Jesus has given us. And Father, we ask that you, that you would help us to, to live out these qualities in our lives and as your church that we would be beatitude, not only believing, but living people. That we would be a people that is humble, that is dependent fully on you, that is desiring your, your things, the things of, of you, righteousness. Father, that we would be a people that is holy because you have made us holy. That we would be a people that shows mercy because you have shown us mercy. That we would be a people who makes peace because you have made peace through your son Jesus. 
Father, we don't have to look far, maybe even in our own hearts and our own lives, to see the brokenness and strife that is taking place. And so, Father, would you bring restoration, reconciliation? Would you restore what we have broken? Father, help us to be the peacemakers and the merciful. Help us to be pure in heart, to be holy, to be set apart. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your son, and we thank you for the example of your son. And Father, we ask that you would help us to to live out these qualities in our life. Father, we ask all of this in your precious son's name. Amen. Friends, we're going to move into our time of communion and commitment and prayer and For us as Jesus followers, this time of communion reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us on our behalf. How he has waged peace on our behalf. We take the bread and it reminds us of his body and the cup reminds us of his blood. That he has poured out, that he has given to stand in our gap. To wash away our sins. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to join us in this time. And if you didn't grab communion on the way in, you can raise your hand and we'll bring that to you right at your seat. But join us in this time of remembering how Jesus has been our peacemaker. And friends, if you're here and you have never had peace between you and God, you never submitted yourself to him, you never come and and given your life to him and met him in baptism and you're ready to do that today or maybe you have some questions about what that means. I'm going to be out in the lobby. I would love to talk with you or call or text me anytime. Let's have that conversation. But friends, when you're ready, let's remember and let's proclaim together the sacrifice that Jesus has made to make peace between us and God. Let's remember together.